Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we'll pick up again in Deuteronomy 28 where we left off. Uh, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So all of Deuteronomy is structured like a covenant between a, a, a conquering army over a a conquered people. It's called a Caesarean covenant. It's not a covenant between equals at all. It's a stronger party and a weaker party coming together. And at the beginning of Deuteronomy, if you remember, Moses for, for a few chapters said, you need to follow the Lord and here's why. It's going to be good for you, et cetera, et cetera. And then chapters five through 26 give a series of laws. This is the rule now that God's going to be your Lord. And, and if God's going to be the overlord of your country, there's some benefits that come with that. Um, and of course, if you want to continue to defy the Lord your God, there's curses that come with that. So when we finished chapter 27, we had a series of curses and the people agreed with amen shouting uh, across the, the hills between each other. So they've signed the covenant through those amens at the end of 27. Now, at the at, at this side or or this piece, they've agreed to the curses of 27. Now in chapter 28, we're going to get to if you agree to the the covenant, here's all the good things that are going to hap- happen to you, and we'll go through another round of blessings and then curses and then blessings. The first curses in 27 that they agreed to as the end of the co- kind of signing the covenant paperwork um, had blessings that go with them too. So at the beginning of 28. It's really kind of the same chapter as 27. We're going to see a listing of blessings that kind of are are, um, going to be balanced out with with curses. And then towards the end of 28, um, we're going to see an entire history of Israel, like the the history of the entire nation is going to be laid out for us um, prior to the nation even taking its its territory. So in the beginning, in verse 1, it says, if... If is a big word, and and we're going to see that there are options, and that's the blessings and the curses. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, verse 1, there will be these blessings. And the purpose at the end of verse 1 is that Israel will be set above all nations of the earth. Um, They will be the most powerful nation on the planet. They will be the representing uh, what it looks like when a country follows the law of the Lord and how blessed they will be. It is hard to argue that that has come that that has happened. It came close under Solomon that they were high above all the nations of the earth, but even Solomon defied the law of God um, and, 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 and there was a downfall and we'll see that as we go through the rest of the Old Testament. Israel's really never unequivocally been the most powerful nation on earth and they've never unequivocally followed and obeyed the voice of the Lord God as they've done things. God's blessed them and he's cursed them. He's done both. Either way, God's going to get revealed. 
he'll get revealed in an overtaking manner. In verse 2, it says overtake. Later, we're going to see that the, the curses will overtake them too. You can't avoid God's blessings or curses once they're coming your way. It's like running as fast as you can and, and being overtaken, like in a bad nightmare, uh, for the curses at least. Um, being overtaken by someone you love is not such a bad thing. Uh, and in this case, it's the blessings that are going to overtake them. So, blessed shall you be in the city, verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall, you, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. A phrase that gets used in uh, 1 Kings 3, which means... Blessed are you in your private life and in your public life. When you go in and out of your house, either place, you're going to be blessed. An omnipresent God, when he blesses the people of Israel, can bless them in their entire lives. Work, farming, the basket reference in verse 5 is that even the food you store in your cupboards and your pantries can last longer with God. And Moses just will point out to them that God blesses them in, in very simple ways, like helping their shoes to last while they're marching through the desert. That this blessing that happens from God is will overtake them, verse 2, and it'll bless them in all sorts of ways. Life just gets easier with God. When you follow his law and do what he has, one of the natural consequences of following his law is that things just go better um, and there's going to be a blessing. We need to be careful when we talk about blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy, especially in a covenant between God and Israel. These blessings and cursings are particular to Israel. And anyone that takes these blessings out of context and says, well, God's going to bless the fruit of your body if you obey his commands. He hasn't signed that contract uh, with you unless you're part of the nation of Israel. This contract that we're reading right now is in direct reference to a contract with Israel. That said, we still can see the nature of God. We can still see what God wants for his people. We can still see uh, very clearly some principles around living and why we should live a certain way. So there's lots we can take from this, but we have to be careful about taking it line by line or out of context uh, for our individual lives when he's talking about a country. Um, and, and that helps because I don't have flocks that I'm watching over and, and I don't have land that I'm producing things from necessarily. Um, so we have to keep some of that in context, but I think there's lots of principles we can come out. For instance, in verse 7, it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So God's will for his people is that when the enemies come, not if they'll come, but when they do, that they'll be defeated. God will defeat them. But that's not necessarily a promise for every Jesus-following believer all over the planet. It's a promise for the nation of Israel. That said, we will see victory because we are more than conquerors. There are, there are mirroring promises in the New Testament, but our victories will be spiritual. They won't be against a physical army that challenges or charges us. So this example of a blessing from Joshua to Nehemiah is going to be a theme. When Israel follows the Lord, they win in battle, and they always go out in battle with the weaker of the two armies. And they'll when they defeat their enemies, that, that idea of going seven ways means you're just scattered. There's, there's no organization because you're beaten that bad. Verse 8 says, the Lord will command the blessing on you 
and in your storehouses and in all which you set your hand and he will bless you in the land in which the Lord God is giving you. So a national blessing. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself and just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So he's repeating his terms. If you follow me, I'll bless you. Verse 10, then all the peoples of the earth shall see you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. This is the witness. This is the idea that as a holy people, they're going to represent God on the planet. And that is also our job. Jesus says it's our job to be a witness, to be a shining light for the world. So this is a consistent thing with God, with the nation of Israel, but it's also consistent with what we see uh, with Jesus Christ, that if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And then we are to witness to the world the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the same principle. Verse 11, the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, and to give your rain land in its seasons, to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, you shall not borrow, and the Lord will make you head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath, and you shall heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and be careful to observe them. So believers necessarily, God's people aren't to follow the world. They're supposed to lead. And I think this is kind of important when you see Christians trying to add Christian as an adjective to things of the world. So we're going to make Christian fill-in-the-blank kind of music but they've already heard that music in the world. Now they're going to Christianize it. But that's following. That's being the tale. Israel, when it leads, will not be following anyone. They'll be leading and going their own way. And part of that is verse 12. They'll get rains from heaven. Uh, they will be a borrowing nation, not a, or a, a lending nation, not a borrower. Uh, verse, the end of verse 12, which tells you the character of God. In God's eyes, it's good to not be in debt. So when you see a nation that's going further and further into debt, from God's perspective, that's a curse. That's not a blessing. And whatever, you know, odd economics would make you think differently is really in defiance of what the Word of God says, that debt is bad. It's assumed to be bad. Um, it is assumed to be a good thing to lead um, and to be blessed by God and to, and to have all these, these benefits as a nation that'll come. This is not a promise to an individual. Uh, it's a pro promise to an entire nation. Verse 14. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right, to the left, to go after other gods and serve them. Like any covenant, God wants that covenant to be strong. And he sees this as almost like a marriage covenant. And he treats it that way because normal Caesarean covenants do not have aspects like love involved in them or mercy involved in them. Uh, they, this one does, and he treats it that way, and he calls it that way all the way up through in the first century. We see Jesus calling the church his bride. Uh, uh, that idea that God wants to be in a complete communion with his people is something we see here that's kind of impressive. Why would an all-powerful God want to have this kind of a connection? But to go after other gods and serve them? What an affront to that relationship. It's adultery. Uh, the structure of this chapter, then, is to restate over and over again what we've seen the entire book of Deuteronomy. It builds this beautiful image for the reader that you have a choice. There are blessings or curses. And we're spending multiple chapters on the blessings and the curses. And it's important because 
as we go into curses, curses in the next verse, in verse 15, this completes the worldview of the law, which has three parts. There is the law itself, the rules you're supposed to follow. When we inevitably fail to follow those rules, there is the sacrificial system that has been set up in the book of Leviticus. So between the sacrifices which atone for sins and pay for sins and make us right and holy and on good terms with God, the law is there to show us what's right and wrong in God's eyes, not our own eyes, in God's eyes. So between the law and the sacrifice, the only thing that's left, which we're seeing in these chapters, is the choice, the blessings or the curses. At the end of the day, God's not going to force the hand of human beings. He would rather have you love and spend time with him out of respect and honor and, and even a fear of God than to have you reject him and follow after other gods because you fear them more and because you love them more. So you have a choice and God doesn't take that choice away from humanity. That's a, a really important concept. So when we look at the curses, it's not that God wants to curse Israel. He just got done explaining the blessings. What he wants is to bless them incredibly, but he also wants that to be a voluntary relationship. Thus, we have the choice. So in verse 15, we get into those curses. If it shall come to pass, or but it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the Lord of your, your of the Lord, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you, and there's the same word, and overtake you. You can't avoid these. There's a curse to not obeying the law. Verse 16, curse shall you be in the city, curse shall you be in the country. These are going to be the opposite of the blessings we just read. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Curse shall you be when you come in, curse shall you be when you go out. In Deuteronomy 11, right before they dug in, you know, to the kind of the specific laws, they talked about this idea of you can water by foot and do it the hard way. Like the when they were in Egypt, they'd have to pump the the irrigation system. So they'd pump the water from the river to their crops and they'd do it with a foot pump. Or it can rain. And watering your crops by heaven is so much easier than watering by foot. And it's actually way more effective. And, and so the option of water by foot or water by heaven seems to come back here with the curses. It's an omniscient God an omnipresent God, well, your whole life, when God lifts his hand from your life, your whole life just gets more difficult. It's like watering by foot. And you're cursed everywhere. When you're in your house, when you're out of your house, when you're at work, how long your food will last, everything's just going to be harder. Notice, key point here, there's no middle ground for Israel. I mean, it, it, it's once they've made this covenant back in chapter 27, there's no middle ground left for them. They don't get to be halfway neutral, lukewarm kinds of, of people. They're either going to get blessed, overtaken with blessings, or they're going to get overtaken with curses. And that's a principle that remains true with believers. In fact, what used to be something you could mildly enjoy or at least be neutral about before you started to follow Christ, have you ever noticed those things kind of get ruined when you follow Christ? Have you ever noticed that those things that used to give you mild joy? I mean, for me, I can think of like playing fantasy football. I used to kind of like that. It was okay. It wasn't the joy I feel in Christ, for sure, but it was kind of okay and, and passable entertainment for me. But once you really choose to follow the Lord with your whole heart and soul, 
the Lord's going to start turning you into something different. And you're going to look at those things you used to do, and they're just not going to have the same life in them anymore. There's no middle ground. Either you're serving the Lord God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, or you're not. And those things just don't, they, ha they are shown for what they are, which is a vain pursuit of a point that somebody scores because some guy runs over a chalk line which doesn't really mean anything when it comes to people's eternal salvation. So commitment to God ruins thoughtless oblivion. And some of us used to like thoughtless oblivion. It was a, it was a good place to be. Um, so that's the first level of curses. Now, what we're going to see here is that the curses get a lot more progressive. They get worse. Um, and God's going Moses is laying out, and this is a miracle, what's ha going to happen in this chapter. He's laying out the entire history of Israel and every curse they're going to get until the end of, of, of history. So in verse 20, it shifts to this prophetic. We had the balance um, of the blessings and the curses that are done. And that just comes to like the natural consequence of living under the law or not. Um, if, if you live a good life, there are certain blessings that just come with that. Can't avoid them over, or you'll be overtaken with them. Verse 20, the Lord will send you on, send you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to until you're destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. We shift to future tense here and we shift to after they've taken the land and they use a word destroyed and we're going to see the word get destroyed again and again and again. Destroyed is to be broken down. It doesn't mean to be killed or moot. It means to be lowered or humbled. So when we see destroyed, I think in the English, we think that means you're obliterated, you're gone. But we're going to see that's not the case because they keep getting destroyed at each level. Um, and, uh, and, and it, but they are going to be humbled at each level. And the point of the humbling is that they turn back to God. But if they don't, it's just going to get worse and worse. Verse 21, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until he's consumed you from the land in which you're going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. <laughs> I like how mildew is the last thing on the list. Of all these horrible things, including like military attacks, the sword... Uh, and scorching, whatever that is, mildew gets listed last. And they shall pursue you until you perish. So who wants to get stricken with mildew? But don't worry, it gets worse. Uh, if, if you don't respond to that, if those curses don't get your attention, Israel, then in verse 23, the, your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. And the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven. It shall come down on you until you're destroyed. So you'll get drought. Bronze is a metal that when we saw the tabernacle get built, uh, it, has, it has associated with it when it's mentioned in the Old Testament. It always comes with judgment. So essentially when, when the Lord holds back his, his rain, um, there's a judgment that comes with that, that he's judging their behavior and their actions and their adultery following after other gods. Um, and whether or not the rains fall or don't fall, we, we have a, a lot of folks that know the science behind that, um, but how it happens and when it happens, the Lord claims power over that. He controls when that's going to happen. Verse 25, Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. The, the reverse of what we saw in the curses. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. So they're going to have 
military strife and, and defeats that are so bad there will be nobody left to bury the bodies. It gets worse. Um, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch. Not just itches or getting itchy, but the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. You shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in the darkness. You shall not prosper in all your way, in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. So we get to this idea that they're going to uh, be reduced to bad health, bad hygiene. Remember, a lot of the law was how to keep good hygiene. So if you don't follow it, the itch is coming. Um, but this idea of madness and blindness and confusion of heart, of a confusion of the heart is to not, not know what's good, to not know what's right and what's wrong. And you think of a national trend to be blind and mad would be people in the, in the leadership roles doing things and making decisions that make no sense whatsoever. Absolute madness from the leadership, which I know sounds familiar, right? Because we see some of these things. When a country, in principle, when God lifts his hand of blessing from a country, one of the indicators of that is that you've got a government that gropes at noonday like a blind man gropes in the darkness. Um, that they don't quite know which way to go and they start flip-flopping. And we're going to see that in the Old Testament with Israel is that they're going to be aimless and without a rudder as a country. They're going to flip between a good king and a bad king and a good king and a bad king. And the nation won't make good decisions. And they'll make, or even the good kings will make bad decisions that hurt the country. Um, so that's going to happen in the Old Testament. We'll see that all come true. Um, and their prosperity will start to get hurt as they fall away from God. And then in verse 30, it gets worse. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard and not gather its grapes. If you remember when they talked about the law around military um, earlier in Deuteronomy, it said those were the three criteria that if a soldier came out for battle and they had not been with their wife or built their house or reaped or ate from their own vineyard yet, that they were to go back home and leave the battlefield. So if you disregard that law, naturally these things will happen. You might die in the battlefield and you, you're ignoring the law in the first place. So you're going to have people that die in battle um, that don't get to partake of the work that they've put in or, or the, their newlywed wife. Um, so these are curses that are natural if you're not following laws that prevent them. So is 31. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes. You shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before you. It shall not be restored to you. Remember, restoring a donkey was one of the laws here in Deuteronomy, that if you found somebody's donkey, you're supposed to feed it and take care of it until you could get it back to the owner. So if you're disregarding the law, then these things are just now the, the new rule of the land. Your sheep shall be given uh, to your enemies. You shall, you shall have no one to rescue them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long and there should be no strength in your hand. So all of this gets protected under the law um, and now they're not. Another thing, and people, some folks look at some of these things is that the constant pillaging, the, the constant issues they have with the nations around them 
uh, especially leading up at, like through First Kings and, and, and into the other parts of the Old Testament, is that there is a season here, especially under the judges, where Israel keeps getting weak and then they need a good leader to help them overcome that weakness. And then they, they push away their enemies for a little bit, but the enemies just keep coming back. So a huge part of that is that they're going after other gods. So as they make good decisions, they win against their enemies. As they make bad, a lot of what we just read is going to come true. You think of the Philistines as just this ongoing enemy in the Old Testament. Um, they're just going to keep coming. But it gets worse because they're, they're not going to turn back to the Lord. Uh, they're going to continue to make choices to follow after their own will. Um, and there's going to be another nation that rises up, which kind of fits better um, with some of these next parts. Verse 33, a nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, and you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. The Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation neither of you or your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. So the those that will come in and eat the fruit of your land could easily be the Assyrians. The land to the north has, is a little more abundant and richer, and the Assyrians come in and conquer the northern half of Israel. Later, the Babylonians come and conquer the southern half of Israel, and both of them will haul those people off to lands they don't know so that they can be slaves and servants. So they'll get taken all over the world and, 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 and dispersed because of those nations. A nation they don't know at the time, in verse 36, um, would not be the Assyrians, because the Assyrians would have been a known people group when Moses was writing, but the Babylonians weren't. Uh, so that idea that neither you or your fathers have known this new kingdom, the Babylonians rise a little later in history, uh, and they too conquer and haul off the, the Israelites. So they could turn back to the Lord their God and there would be blessings again, but if they don't, it's just going to keep getting worse. And you think, how does it get worse than this? Well, that idea that you're going to um, uh, be hauled off is one of them. So we'll get to we'll get we'll get to that here. And you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations, where the Lord will drive you. So an example of a byword is like when you say something to your kids and say, "Well, you really don't want to be like so and so because look what happened to them." So to be a proverb is you know, to a, a saying or a, a something that everyone knows, uh, like don't let the bed bugs bite. But it would be something more like, uh, you know, don't let the God of the Israelites curse you like he does them. Um, and it would be spreading around these nations that the Jews are just a people that are always under the foot of, of someone else. So don't be like those folks. Either way, the word astonishment is here in verse 37. God's going to astonish the world. He's going to astonish the world either by setting Israel above all nations or they're going to become a proverb or a cautionary tale to all nations. But all nations of the world are going to see that Israel is being parented by God, that he's the God of that nation. It makes them exceptional. Um, and, the, and the discipline he's going to give if they continue to not follow his law 
is he's going to continue to have it get worse for them. Uh, and in verse 38, it indeed gets worse. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in. So before they planted things in the field and it grew and someone else came and stole it, but at least the, the ground would give life and would give produce. But here you shall put the seed out to the field, but gather little in because the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you'll neither drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms are going to eat them. You shall have olive trees through all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil because the olives are going to drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours. They will go into a, a captivity. This is exactly what happens under Babylonian rule. As Babylon takes over this region of the world, they pull the skilled labor out. Thus, we get the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Abednego. Um, they take all the skilled later, labor, the leaders, the craftspeople, and they haul the people that have skill back to Babylon to help build the mighty capital. But in each phase, they take more and more people that have ability. So King Jehoiakim oversaw the skilled labor being hauled off to Babylon. Je Jehoiachin sees the next wave of people being hauled off to Babylon under the prophet Ezekiel, if you want to kind of chronologically put that into place. And then the third wave of Babylon taking over is that they just they take anybody that can even work. Uh, and that's under Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is the last king of Israel that has any kind of autonomy from another empire. So even when the, the Jews come back to the promised land under the Persians, under Cyrus, they, they may have a king, but that king never has authority again. They're under the Persians, and then they're under the Greeks, and then they're going to be under the Romans. So there will always be a foot on their neck after this point. In verse 38 through 40, we talk about just the land itself drying up, and this happens under Babylonian rule. Without people who know good farming practices, the land is wore out, a lot like the Great Depression here in the United States. So the curse that was pretty general gets more and more specific. We're going to have a nation of people that can't even produce anything, and thus this land will become worthless without the Jewish people running it and, and ruling it. The locusts in verse 42 shall consume all your trees, the produce of your land, the alien who is among you, you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. So progressively from the Persians, which were pretty hands off, to the Greeks, which simply had tax collectors, to the Romans, the authority of the governing power gets increasingly more oppressive. And when you get to Rome, you've got a group of people that absolutely dominate the people. They, on every street corner, there's a Roman soldier. So this is part of Rome and how they do rulership, and it's extremely effective in suppressing uh, foreign groups of people. So the land becomes a wilderness, uh, and it does. And when we saw that even up into the 1900s, this land is kind of desolate um, under foreign rule. Verse 44, he shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. They shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. So even after they're taken out of the land, the Jewish people will remain a people. And those descendants will have these curses uh, and this, this progression of curses goes well beyond the covenant. So 
this idea that we, we have this sign and wonder in verse 46 seems like a conclusion, but then in verse 47, because you did not serve in the past tense, there's a transition point here. Like something happens, like biblical history is going to end at verse 46, and then there's some a New Testament that's going to show up in between these paragraphs. So God's building an eternal story with the word forever. The story doesn't end just because Israel doesn't control the land or because there isn't a king of, of the Jews uh, that's reigning forever. In fact, this is why when the Romans are ruling, the Jewish people are looking for their Messiah, is because they feel that all of this chapter 28 has been fulfilled. Therefore, it's time for Messiah to show up, which we're going to get to when we see the prophets and the blessings. But in verse 47, it's still going to get worse for Israel. So the Hebrews as a nation will continue to go downhill. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and in need of everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So they're going to look a lot like they did in Egypt. They're going to go about their day-to-day -day lives, but with a yoke on their neck. They're never going to profit from their labors. They're never going to get ahead. They're going to have student loans riding them for the rest of their life. And they're going to do so in discomfort, hunger, thirst, nakedness, in need of everything. And we see the option between 47 and 48. One option is the blessings, joy, gladness of heart, abundance of everything. But the when they choose to follow their own gods, their own will, they're going to get the opposite. They're going to get nothing. So serve with joy and be blessed or serve your enemies and be cursed. The question isn't whether or not the Jews are going to serve. And I think that's the same with us. Humans were made to worship. We were made to wake up in the morning and pine for something. So either you worship your entertainment coming on the weekend or you worship the Lord God Almighty. There's no neutrals. There's no fence riders here. If Israel's going to be a banner holder, and if we're going to be a banner holder for Christ, then we have to serve that master. We can't have two masters. It doesn't work that way. You either serve one and hate the other, or you hate one and serve the other, or something like that. We're wired to worship. Ask some core questions. When you wake up in the morning, what do you look forward to? Or if, if it's during the work week and, and you don't like your job, and you're not looking forward to your job, what is it that you can't wait to do on the weekend or in the evenings? What are you saving up money for? Where does your time go? You can tell what's, who somebody worships by just looking at where they allocate their free time, time when they're not under a yoke or, or when they're not desperately trying to put clothes and a, and a roof over their head. So that time spent when you have free time is a real good indicator of what you worship. Do you worship a big glowing screen or do you worship the living God? Do you worship wood and stone or do you worship a living God? Do you worship your reputation? Do you worship, uh, you know, lust? Do you worship pride? Do you worship greed? What are the things you spend your time on? So the world promises so much, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't deliver. 
So you ever notice that? Uh, I, you first notice it when you're a kid. When you're, For me, it was pining for Star Wars action figures. And I would really just want that action figure. I'd look at it in the store. I would study how it was shaped and how close it was to the movie character. And I would ask my parents for it and I'd beg for it. And then on my birthday, I would get it. I'd rip it out of that package. I was super excited. And about a day later, I wasn't. it was just in my collection with all the others. You ever notice that? Like when you're growing up? It's like God teaches that to us at a young age. The the action figures just get bigger as adults. You know, you save up for that thing, you finally get it, and a you know a month after you get it, it just loses its new car smell, and it's just part of your day to day life because the world offers so much happiness. Look at any billboard, <laughs> and it delivers so little happiness. God does the opposite. He offers a loving relationship, keeps it really subdued, gives you free will if you want to choose it or not. He promises trials and tribulations to people who follow Jesus. But he delivers so much more than that. He delivers joy, gladness of heart, abundance of everything. For people with eyes to see, the joyful walk with Christ is so much better. And he gives Israel a similar choice. But they don't. if they don't choose it, it's just going to get worse. So here we get another destroyer of, of worlds. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. So there's going to be another nation that conquers this region. And when that happens isn't said, but it gives us a couple clues. It's a nation. It's going to be from afar. So outside of walking distance and from the end of the earth, which for, um, for the Middle East and the ancient people of the Middle East, the end of the earth really meant the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They're going to come in from the Mediterranean, as the Romans do, by the way. Um, they're going to be swift as an eagle flies. America is not the only ancient nation or nation that has the eagle as its mascot. Um, in the ancient world, uh, the Romans also had an eagle for their mascot. They'd put it on a banner in front of them when they marched into battle. It's going to be a nation whose language you don't understand, which means it's not the Assyrians, it's not the Babylonians, which both spoke Aramaic. It's going to be a nation that speaks another language. Roman comes in, the Romans come in speaking Latin, which is why most people believe this is prophetic of the Roman uh, occupation. Uh, verse 50 helps with that characterization. There is no nation more fierce than the Romans. The, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly or show favor to the young. You know, the Romans really had no regard for life. One soldier in a marketplace could keep control of a whole marketplace because that soldier had permission to kill without, without any hesitation. Um, and, and everyone who was occupied by Rome knew that. And if you decided you think you might kill the Roman soldier before they kill you, the Romans would retaliate with far more violence than was done. So you kill one Roman soldier, they'll wipe out the whole city. And that's how the Romans operate. And it's how they dominate for 800 years of human history. They're fierce people. They shall, increase, they shall eat the increase of your livestock, the produce of your land, until you're destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new oil, the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks, until they've destroyed you. Until they make you submit, Rome will take everything. And they would employ tax collectors and offer them some scraps and say, we'll hook you up. And we'll let you thrive a little bit if only you speak the local language and you can collect the taxes for us. And Rome's taxation was overwhelming. So in, in 66 BC, Pompey conquers the Middle East. He comes with an eagle. 
He's fierce. He's a nation from the end of the earth. And the Romans have no regard for the, the old or the young. People that can't produce for them have no value. They establish their rule. And because of these verses, the Jewish people start looking for Messiah. This must be it. We've reached the end of our curses. It's why the Pharisees are running around trying to get everybody to follow every little rule they've made up is because if only we just can be more holy than what the law says, then God will stop cursing us and we will stop being under the foot of our oppressors. But Rome gave them a new lesson in what oppression really looked like. And they eat the increase. They take everything. They don't initially destroy the people. They do their destruction, not militarily, but they do it through taxation. And these verses fit that really well. Um, and the Roman people, according to Josephus, um, together with those they had orders to slay, would slay the aged and the infirm to get rid of people that were eating food that they could tax. So they would slaughter people just to make sure they could eat more. So the Roman people do this, and it's historical record. And, and, you, and you can't even make this up. I mean, this just fits. You can't make this up. The way in which these things fit is, is, is so impressive. It says in verse 52, they shall besiege you at your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you at your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord is God has given you. After Jesus, the Christians or the Jewish people start to follow Christ and they start to see some blessings. But in AD 68, the people that do not accept Christ, the Jewish people, um, rise up and challenge the Romans. And the Romans destroy the second temple in AD 68. The generals are Vespasian and Titus, and they are they don't attack the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They just siege them. And the siege is brutal. I'll tell you some stories here from the siege. But one of the reasons that they sieged the, the, the city is that Vespasian felt that God, Yahweh, was a better general than him. And if he just holds back then the Jews will start to attack each other. There'll be rebel Jews against the Roman Empire and the rebels will start to kill other Jews so that they can survive. And this becomes gory. Like this is the curse that keeps getting worse. And this sieging at the gates and these high, tall, high walls, when they just wait, the, 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 the towers don't protect the Jewish people because the sieging is the, the counteraction to high walls and high towers. They don't work if you can't get food. So book nine, Josephus, verse 411 says, we have certainly had God for our assistant in this war. And it was no other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications. For what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers? The Romans actually glorify God for de defeating the Jewish people. It doesn't matter if the Jews follow God or they don't follow God. God's going to get the glory. It gets even worse. As the siege continues, verse 53, you shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. And in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you. So oddly enough in the siege, uh, there's a uh, prophecy in Luke 21:20 that those who accept Christ start reading the book of Luke. And by AD 68, the book of Luke is getting distributed uh, and disseminated amongst the Christians. And they read this in Luke 21, 28. It says, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that the desolation of thereof is nigh. 
And let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them that are in the countries enter thereinto. God warns his people to get the heck out of Jerusalem. Don't trust in the strong towers and the walls. Get out. And the Christians do. So in the fall of, of Jerusalem, very few Christians are killed in the fall of Jerusalem. They just go out into the countryside and start hiding underground. And they, they uh, instead of rebelling against Rome, they just hide. And it saves thousands of Christian lives. But some of the Jewish people that wanted to rebel and rise up against Rome, they stayed a fight. And if you're going to stay to fight, being in the city is a good place. So they start to starve to death. The Romans wait. They hold off their attack. And historically, we kind of have to depart from the word of God here a little bit, because though we have prophecy that tells the Jews what's going to happen to Israel, the story of God's blessing follows the Christians as you go into the New Testament. It doesn't follow the Jewish story anymore. In fact, the nation of Israel becomes a lot less important than the people of God and the church at that point in the biblical text. But history keeps plowing forward, and the Hebrew, the Jewish people, are going to be here forever. So um, their story continues. So we have to turn to Josephus. And we get this little image. This is one kind of a famous story. During the siege of Rome, uh, there is a, a woman in the city who seizes her child, and she says, my poor baby, why should I keep you alive in this world of war and famine? Even if we live till the Romans come, they will make slaves of us. And anyway, hunger will get us before the slavery does. And the rebels are crueler than both. So it's this woman who's living in Jerusalem and the, the Jewish rebels against Rome are, are, are going house to house to get food and they're stealing food. So she bemoans this and then she turns to her baby and says, come and be food for me and an avenging fury to the rebel, rebels, and a tale of horror to the world to complete the monstrous agony of the Jews. So when she says this, I think she's saying it with an awareness that we're reaching the end of the curses here. It doesn't get a lot worse. So with these words, she kills her son. This is recorded in, in Josephus's wars. She roasts the body, she swallows half of it, and then she stores half of her baby's body in a safe place. The rebels knock on her door because they can smell the roast meat and they threaten to kill her if she doesn't produce the food. So she assures them that she saved them a share of the food and she reveals the remains of her baby and the, the Jews are seized with horror and stupefaction in the words of Josephus, I like that word, and they stood paralyzed when they saw it. And then she says, this is my own child and my own handiwork. Eat because I've eaten already. Don't show yourselves weaker than a woman or more pitiful than a mother. So don't be a, don't be a sensitive, wimpy person. Eat this child just like I did. But if you have pious scruples and you shrink from human sacrifice, then what I have eaten can, you can, count, can count as your share. And I'll eat what's left as well. At that, the Jews slink away. They're trembling and they dare not eat, though they were reluctant to yield even to the food of the mother. The whole city rings with the abomination. All the Jews tell each other instantly. And Josephus is able to record it because he can hear this story later on. And when people hear of it, they shudder as though they had done it themselves, he writes. When this happens, the Jews take it personal because it says you're going to eat your own, the, the fruit of your, your, your children and the flesh of your children you're going to eat. It continues to say that in verse 54 of Deuteronomy. The sensitive and refined man among you will be hostile towards his brother, 
towards the wife of his bosom, towards the rest of his children whom he leaves behind. You know, clearly referring to this, these rebel, rebel people. So that he will not give any of them, he will not give any of them the flesh of his own children whom he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you at your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband her bosom and to her son and to her daughter her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and the desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at your gates. It's hard to not connect the story of Josephus. This is why the story spread. It's why they all shared the story. It's because Deuteronomy 28 pretty much says that's going to happen. You're at the end of days, right? When this kind of happens. So in Josephus' Wars, book 8, verse 405, it says, When they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men, and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. That is, such as died by the famine, but then they stuck in horror at this sight, and they went out not touching anything. The Roman soldiers, are the fierce Roman soldiers, are disgusted by what they find when they get to Jerusalem. Now, a few of the Jews... The rebel Jews, the ones fighting against Rome, they gather together. They run up to Masada, and you can go to Masada. They've they've dug it all up. Um, it's recorded in in the Book of Wars, uh, Book Seven, uh, verse uh, Chapter Eight, Verse Seven. Josephus says he was afraid lest perhaps these effeminate persons should, by their lamentations and tears, enfeeble those that heard what he had said courageously. Uh, it, it, it leads to math suicide. Uh, and, and at Masada, they all kill themselves uh, versus um, letting the Romans kill them. So you have this idea of these men who were supposed to be rebelling against Rome, but they can't. And even the refined ones, the ones that think they know better, uh, start to consider eating children, are, are, are sickened by it. There's a, a woman that will do it in order to survive. Um, and in essence, at, at the end of the days, even these men turn on their own, uh, their, their, their husband, the sons, the daughters, um, and they kill themselves. Uh, that's on uh, AD 73, the month of Xanthius, on the 15th day. So historical fact. And the way the, the histories of Josephus match with this prophecy, it's hard to not think these are there. But in case the people of God, because it says that they'll be destroyed and the destroyer will come, but there's still a remnant left. God always leaves a remnant of the Hebrew people, and there's still a remnant. And it does get worse than just being conquered by Rome. Verse 58. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Again, Israel, turn to the Lord your God. Please turn to God, because it's just going to get worse and worse. Moreover, he, God, will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, which you, of which you were afraid, and they'll cling to you. And every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will, will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. 
you shall be left few in number. So obviously destruction doesn't mean they're all gone. It just means they will be humbled and, and lessened in numbers. So there'll only be a few left. Whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked off the land which you go to possess. So a second time, they're going to be picked up and hauled out of uh, the Holy Land, out of Canaan. The first time under the Babylonians, but again, they're going to be hauled back again. So there's a chapter missing, which is when they come back to the land and they get blessed. But we'll see that in the coming chapter. Um, and God goes on with this, this idea of being left few in number. We actually know what that number is. So coming into the Holy Land, there are around two million people. As Rome defeats them decisively in this rebellion that they have, levels Jerusalem and slaughters them for a decade, uh, they are very close to wiping them out. So uh, in Josephus, in, in chapter 9, verse 420, it says, Now the number of those that were carried captive during this whole war was collected. The Romans were great at keeping tallies of things, and they especially kept a tally of how many slaves they collected. So after the entire war with the Jews, and they are completely subdued and defeated, there are 97,000 of them still remaining, as was those of the number that perished. Just the siege of Jerusalem, they killed 1,100,000, which in our language is 1.1 million Jews are killed in the siege of Jerusalem. And the Romans capture 97,000 from the entirety of all the war with the Jews or throughout the countryside. And they pick them up and they haul them out of their land and they bring them to uh, Egypt. And in Egypt, there's no one left to buy them because they flood the slave market with Jewish slaves. So ironically, they started in Egypt and they're going to go back to Egypt. Um, but a couple things here in verse 64 um, the ones that aren't enslaved and aren't killed get away from Israel. They run out of the land and they scatter all over the world. It's called the diaspora. We actually have a name for this historical event. So as the Jewish people are continuously plagued, they continue to scatter. So in verse 64, it says, Then the Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. Today, the Jewish people are largely secularized. They worship whatever gods are in the country that they, they live in. They worship football and they worship the marketplace and they worship the, the job pursuits. Um, and for the most part, the bulk of the bulk of people that consider themselves Jewish are fairly secular. Um, and the spreading all around the world has continues to happen from Rome forward. So there's historical purges that happen. And again, this is just part of history. This isn't really, you know, we can see that it matches with the prophecy, which makes the prophecy absolutely stunning in its accuracy. It's a sad story, but after the Romans, uh, the Byzantine, the Christian Byzantines decide they want to start wiping out Jewish people too, as do the Spanish, the French, and the British. Uh, and then you've got the Muslim Ottomans or the Ottoman Turks um, that take over Turkey, and they too decide they're going to purge all Jews from their land. Uh, that's not the end of it. Later on in Europe, of course, you've all heard of the Holocaust. Um, with the invention of cameras, we actually get photos from these purges, um, which were likely just as ugly under the Ottomans and, and the Byzantines and the Romans, 
Uh, but the Germans decide to start mass slaughtering Jewish people and getting them out of their country. Uh, after the Germans, the Soviet Russians do the same thing. They're just better at keeping the cameras away from it. Uh, so we don't have as much historical record of it. But the Russians killed um, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in their purges um, that they had. Verse 64, the Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest. Sound like history? Nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you'll say, oh, that it were evening. And in the evening you'll say, oh, it, it, oh, that it were morning because of the fear which terrifies your hearts and because of the sight which your eyes see. It's hard to not read these verses and think of the Holocaust. It's hard to not see what it's the, worldwide, the only group of people on earth that have a name for killing them are the Jews. It's called anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is an attack on Jews. It's the desire to attack Jewish people. So for other, po for other people groups, it's just called racism or a hate crime. But anti-Semitism is specific to Hebrew people. And they're going to be spread out. They won't be a nation. They'll be all over the planet. And that fearing the morning for the day and the day from the morning uh, sounds like people that are absolutely um, struck with the cold of night being unbearable and then the heat of day being unbearable and just being completely unable to take care of themselves. Verse 68, and the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships. So Josephus again, those, those slaves that get sent to Egypt, this sounds really familiar. They'll be sent to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female servants, but no one will buy you. Nobody's going to buy them. They're going to be unwanted and unkept, leaving them exactly where they started in Egypt, where Egypt decided to start killing all the Jewish babies to reduce their numbers um, and started disregarding them as slaves. And they started to cry out to the Lord. In other words, the Lord's saying, I'm going to put you right back where you started. And it's not going to be a fun journey. I'm not going to give you manna from heaven. Like when they came out of Egypt, they had a sea parted for them. They had water from the stone. They had a cloud to follow by day and by night. And here they're just going to fear by day and by night, right? They're going to thirst and be hungry. And God gave them water and manna in the wilderness. So the trip to the promised land was completely blessed by God. The trip away from the promised land and back to where they started will take centuries and it will be miserable. So follow the Lord, or the Lord will lift his hand and you'll end up right where you started. And it's all recorded history. It isn't just the Bible saying that this is what happened. This God makes his revelation super public. Anyone who takes the time to read Deuteronomy 28 and even think for a moment about what it's saying can see that the historical, actual history of the Jews matches this before they were even founded as a nation. God knew exactly what was going to happen. And they continue to be a witness of God's power throughout the earth. For 3,500 years, they're going to represent what God does when he blesses or when he hurts a nation. Israel is, throughout their history, 
pursued by not just the Egyptians, but the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Spanish, the Ottomans, the Germans, the Russians, the Arab nations, and it's still here today. And to think the United States is a place where they can rest and the sole of their foot can be, I don't know if that's the case. In 1957 in Alabama, the first Jewish synagogue was attacked. Uh, the most recent one was last month, February 2021 in Miami, Florida, a Jewish synagogue was attacked. They don't, they don't know any given day or week or, or night when the next attack is coming or, or who or how violent it will be. What they do know is that they haven't found rest since God sent them away in the diaspora. Israel is an exceptional nation. They're a living, breathing miracle. And it wasn't sustained by any human plan. There's no brilliant Jewish person that helped them conquer, like Alexander the Great for the Greeks. There's none of that. I mean, you can say, well, maybe David. Um, but Israel under David was not what it was under Solomon. And Solomon didn't win a ton of military victories. They, God just gave them a season of peace. It's the oldest continuing people group on earth. The Egyptians were conquered by the Arabs. They're not a continuation, same name, Egypt, but it's not the same people that lived there prior to the Arabs' conquest. The Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews, are continuation of culture that starts 3,500 years ago. At this point, they're the oldest living culture on earth that has been continuous. One law, one people, one God through the whole thing. Not even China can claim that. So they have, for most of their history, no real homeland. The bulk of their time on earth, they've not had a homeland. And God has still sustained them. There is no other culture on earth that has sustained their culture after losing the land that they live on and their autonomy. Just the Jews. There's none. Nothing even comes close to the Jewish people. And all of this coming to pass is striking. God calls it perfectly before they even walk, take one foot into the land. God, and I think what we can draw from this as we wrap up chapter 28, God's history is massive evidence of his hand in history, that his history matches world history perfectly. God doesn't expect blind faith. And I struggle with that. You've heard me bring this up a few times. This idea that we're supposed to just walk forward in faith. Yes, there is faith, and depending on how you define that, but I think, you know, in the modern era, we've come to this idea that faith is somehow blind or ignorant or stupid, that it's a point at which you make a decision based on things you don't know. But we do know the history of Israel. We have massive evidence that not only does it exist, but we have a document that predicted the entire history prior to it even happening. And there are things that God reveals and things that he hides, but for the things that he reveals, it becomes perfectly evident to people. After Jesus rose from the dead, they went back and reread the whole Old Testament and realized that God was opening their eyes to new revelations in pre-existing texts that they could see how the prophecy was fulfilled and go, oh my goodness, it makes perfect sense. That we would have a risen Lord, that there would be a virgin birth, that there would be uh, you know, hundreds of prophecies around Messiah that all fit with Jesus Christ. So where the Jewish people are continuously signaled out for genocide, God still maintains that they will be here forever. Uh, it's why people, I think, signal out uh, Israel, because if they can destroy them, they destroy the credibility of Yahweh. Um, this is a hard chapter to end on. It's a bummer. 
Um, but in the next chapter, we're going to, in two chapters, we're going to hit the blessings. Um, so let me leave a little hope here at the end of chapter 27. Uh, Ezekiel 37, God, God doesn't let them go through all of these curses without hope. So as they start into this progression, when they're getting hauled off to Babylon, God gives them a prophet. And the prophet says to don't worry, Israel will be restored. Israel will come back. So as they're being hauled out of their land, this is what Ezekiel says in chapter 37, verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, my people. God still loves them. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Despite this horrible history, God gives them prophets that remind them that they're still his people. They need to turn to the Lord and love him with all their heart and he'll bless them. In 1948, God gathers Jewish people from all over the earth and they are refounded their nation. Not because the Jewish people were suddenly strong and could reconquer it, but because the British decided to give up their territory and give it to the Jewish people because the Jewish people were getting killed in every country they went to. So in order to bring some sort of stop to the genocide, to the anti-Semitism, they gave them their own land. Initially, uh, Brit Brit Britain wanted to give them part of their land in Africa, um, and ultimately they didn't decide to do that. They decided to give them Palestine. So inadvertently fulfilling the prophecies that they would be brought back into the land of Israel, Ezekiel 37, verse 12. So Africa wouldn't have fit the prophecy, but Israel does. So they get their land back. And all eyes go on this little irrelevant sliver of land that was dust and nastiness when they moved into it. And they get a chance to refound and rebuild the nation, which they have right now. We live in very exciting times because we're beyond this prophecy in Deuteronomy 28. They're being returned to the land. So God's the God of second chances. He can and he does start over. They are back into the millions when it comes to population very quickly, by the way. Um, and we can see that God gives mercy to his people again. And they continue to win uh, scientific awards, peace prizes, the prosperity is coming. The drought in, in Palestine ends in the 1950s. And one of the fun things to do is go look at the border between Egypt and Israel on Google Maps satellite view. And look at, you can see the line between the countries by where the green is, literally, the Jewish people are irrigating the desert and bringing fruit out of this land and that hasn't brought fruit for 2,000 years. So it is stunning to see what exactly is happening in Israel. Amen. Deuteronomy 29, we get a reminder of the covenant. Verse 21 says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So Oreb is Mount Sinai, so this covenant they made with Moses. Uh, we're going to start over, so God's going to give them hope. Even as they get that dreadful prophecy in chapter 28, they're still going to get hope. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You've seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those signs and those wonders, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. So they've seen the plagues of Egypt, the Passover, 
the Red Sea, the springs, the manna, the cloud, and none of it changes their heart. Verse four, none of it helps them to see what God wants. They still have hard, hard hearts. Isn't it amazing how it works like that? We can see the miracles of God. And a day later, we can say, well, I don't know if I really saw that. We can see God do stunning things. And when we see it, we know it's God. But in days as human beings, we start to doubt ourselves. It makes me wonder, like, when Moses saw the burning bush, when he woke up the next morning, was he thinking, eh, I don't know if I just had sunstroke? Or was he doubting right away? And the Bible records that he he didn't. But you wonder to some degree if Moses even struggled with that, that these people saw all these amazing things and they just take it for granted. Because in the ancient world, there weren't atheists. They believed there were gods. They didn't have problem with, with a God that would do miracles. That was well within their worldview. Um, but they doubted that Yahweh would continue to provide for them. They, they thought, you hauled us out to the wilderness just to kill us. So the miracles didn't change their mind. And that's kind of a principle. It does work that way. God's works don't change our hearts. They don't save us. We're not saved by God's works. We're saved by a Holy Spirit that meets us and we fall in love with the Holy Spirit and that changes our hearts. In the same way, our works don't impress God. So we don't have a works-based plan of salvation because our works do nothing to change God's mind in the same way that his works do nothing to change our mind. What does change our mind? The Holy Spirit, a relationship with God changes our heart and changes the direction of our life. And the people of Israel, when their hearts return to God, God forgives and returns to them. So only hearts change hearts, only that sort of thing. But Moses is going to point out to them some miracles that aren't so far away in their memory. These are what I would call quiet miracles. They're not the parting of the Red Sea. They are things like your shoes lasting longer. So he, he points it out to him, and I think this is great. You don't even see what God's doing for you. In addition to those big miraculous things, think of the little miracles he's doing in your life. Have eyes to see and ears to hear what God does. Verse 5, I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Truth, your clothes have not worn out on you. Wait a sec. Imagine they're hearing Moses saying this, and they're all kind of thinking, yeah, I've been wearing this robe for 40 years. We haven't developed clothing even today that lasts for 40 years. If you wear it every day, it's going to go threadbare. And your sandals have not worn out on your feet. And then they're looking at their shoes going, wait a second, he's right. My sandals are as good as the day I walked out of Egypt. In verse 6, you've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. They ate water that God gave them and manna that God gave them every day, just normal routine. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, they came out to battle against you. And we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Keep the covenant, do the covenant, get blessing. The law, the sacrifice, the choice. Here's the choice, and it gives them hope again. God can bless you with quiet miracles. I love this idea. God blesses us with quiet miracles every day. One way to think for people that have, you know, faced death and survived, they think, man, I'm waking up today. I got breath in my lungs. That's a quiet miracle. The Lord's blessed me with another day to be on this planet. But each of these has a spiritual match to it. The raiments, the clothing, in Revelations 3.18, we get white raiments, spiritual raiments. 
Um, the, the sandals that don't wear out, in Ephesians 6.15, we get spiritual sandals that are shod with the gospel of peace. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, there's a new covenant with Christ and a bread and a wine that represent those things. And in addition to this, in the new covenant, we are conquerors just like they are in verse 7. Romans 8.37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We claim territory in the new covenant, just like God's promising them here. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 2 Corinthians 10, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Not the the wistful thinking of God or the hopeful thinking that there might be a God, but the knowledge of God, relationship, and bringing into captivity every thought obedient to Christ. Man, we do battle, we take territory, and most of that battle happens in our own head. We fight against our own flesh, right? We do battle in the spirit. Verse 9 says to keep, do, and do the blessings. Listen to this. Philippians 4, 7 mirrors this really well. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's the deal. That's the hope. If you live with Christ, this is the plan. So I think in verse 19, that's where this is going too. The goal is a heart at peace with God. And how elusive is that for us humans? It's been elusive since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that we'd rather do our own thing than just be at peace with what we have with God, to follow him and to listen to his voice. The voice of the Lord your God is an interesting study to go through the whole Bible and see every time it says the voice of the Lord. We're supposed to follow that voice. And that voice guides us in life and where we're supposed to go. And to be satisfied with that, or the Hebrew word tov, is to be abiding with God and to be content with what God's given us. So these are all reminders that are repeated in the New Testament for Christians. These are principles here that God's saying to his people is part of who he is. And he's still the same God. Verse 10 says, As all of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, also the stranger who's in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. Basically, everybody, not just the leadership. This is for every single person in the nation. God sees all people without partiality. Verse 12, that you, all people, may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today. So for people with eyes to see, he just basically said the stranger who is in your camp, the non a Jewish person, the person not in the line of Jacob or, or a descendant of Abraham, he's offering them a covenant too. Man, if you're going to live here and be with God's people and follow his law, that oath, that promise goes for you too. So even in the Old Testament, non-Jewish people were part of the covenant. So have eyes to see that because he doesn't change in the New Testament. He just boldly says that all people can come under Christ, for he's the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone that comes to him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 13, this is just great. That he may establish you today as a people for himself, that he may be God to you, just as he's spoken to you, and just as he's sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the climax of the story. We've just gotten through five books of the Bible 
this is the game plan. This is the whole purpose of the Pentateuch, right? This is the story so that you can be a people for God, that Israel will stand out as a representative of God. That's the goal. Verse 14, God says, I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord your God, as well as with him, get this, who is not here with us today. Those people that are standing there and the people in the future that are not standing there. Those people that are choosing God and Yahweh with amen, amen, chapter 27. Not just the people yelling amen. This is a covenant that's going to go to people that haven't been born yet. In other words, this stands, the prophecies stand even after this generation goes away. Verse 16, for you know that we dwell in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by. You saw their abominations, their idols which were among them, wood, stone, silver, gold. Uh, You know, Israel, you walked through these countries. You saw the crud that they're into. You saw the corruption, the sickness. You saw the false idol worship, the human sacrifice, the, uh, the, the Moloch worship, the Ashtaroth pornography. You saw all the garbage. God isn't naive of how wicked the world is and neither should believers we as christians we live in that world we know how wicked it is we know how corrupt it is so how should we react to it verse 18 so that there may not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the lord your god getting rid of the wickedness is not the problem getting our hearts to turn to god that's the challenge and we can live resolute for our king in the middle of a nation full of wickedness. And I think one of the great dangers of believers is that we think that we somehow have to defeat the wickedness to be aligned with God. We don't need to do that. God doesn't call his people to go out and assault everyone. He calls his people to love him and he'll do the assaulting and he'll do the conquering. So his goal, verse 18, is that nobody turns away from God, not one person to go and serve the gods of these nations, that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. I'll come back to that. And so that it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though a drunkard could be included with the sober. God lays out here in these verses three options for life. Option one, You serve the Lord God Almighty with all your heart, mind, and soul, the Shema, right? And that's his hope. That's 13 through through 15. His hope is that people choose that. But there's a second option. And the option is you follow after these other gods. And though they promise awesomeness, they promise great entertainment on the weekend, they promise that they're going to be super fun and that you can't miss it. They promise so much, but at the end of the day, you get bitter or wormwood. Because a thinking person either serves God or they become very angry. And they're angry because the world's a horrible, wicked place full of horrible and wicked people. How do you not get bitter over that? So you gotta, and this is where you get the phrase, the bitter pill. You gotta swallow the bitter pill. If you wanna serve yourself and not serve the God of the universe, then you gotta swallow the bitter pill. The wormwood is what people would take. They would take wormwood root in order to get worms out of their stomach. 
So at the end of the day, you see all this horridness in the world, you get angry and mad at it, but you also have to suck down the wormwood and deal with the corruption and sickness and pollution in your own body. Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he said, you got to be more righteous than the Pharisees. You're not getting into heaven because they're whitewashed on the outside, but on the inside, they're corrupt like tombs. They're, they're being eaten by worms. And that's what happens if you serve yourself over the king. You're serving a very small unit of existence. You're serving a lowly human being, even though you think you're really great. Or you could be serving the God of all creation. So there's bitterness and wormwood. Then there's a third option in verse 19, and that is to be like a drunk person. <laughs> to just convince yourself that you're good. You're going to bless your own heart instead of having God bless you. You're just going to bless yourself. And you're going to say to yourself, I have tons of peace. I'm cool. And I even want to throw bro after that because I think of like the stereotypical kind of like frat boy that goes drinking every single weekend and they're just in oblivion. And they're like a drunk drunkard, um, as though a drunkard could be included with the sober. They go through life drunk on their own entertainment and then they call themselves sober. And a sober person looks at it and says, you don't even have a brain in your head. You're not even considering the ramifications that there is a God. You're just going through life pretending like it doesn't matter. You ever met people where they'll, yeah, you have, you ever met people where they'll like, they'll say, you know, I'll figure out God later. I'll, you know, I'm just not worried about that right now. At some point, I'll probably sit down and sort all that out. Well, you're like a drunk person calling yourself sober. That's not intelligence. That's foolishness. And you're going to follow the dictates of your own heart and you're going to think God's going to be okay with that. So you got joy and abundance with God. You got bitterness and wormwood with contesting against God, or you've got complete oblivion and just stupidity with being oblivious to all of it. Those are kind of three life options. And God doesn't lay them out as equally uh, viable. He, he pretty much says the first one is the one you want to run with. So you can do false illusion or you can be, uh, you can be walking down a path uh, of bitterness or you can bless, be blessed by God. You can have peace, you can have war, or you can have fake peace. Might be another way to sum that up. Hearing God's truth shatters the fake peace and it antagonizes the bitter people. So there's nothing worse for someone who's already got a bitter heart than to hear the joy and truth of God. Oh man, the Lord just blessed me today. You wouldn't believe what the people in my church did. Oh, the, I just am so blessed by Bible study every week. Man, it just feeds my soul. There's nothing worse for a bitter option two person than to hear that come out of your mouth. And what you'll get is a lot of anger in recourse to that. And for an oblivious person, the truth of God just shatters the fake peace. It ruins their oblivion. And they may not be happy for that either, but, you know, they generally will just ignore you. So the Lord's not going to let Israel have the oblivion option. They're going to either have to fight him or they're going to have to obey him. Verse 20, the Lord would not spare him for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that's written in this book would settle on him. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. You ever meet people that are living with a fake peace? Their life just tends to get worse and worse and worse. All that partying joy they had tends to turn into like a really sick existence. 
Verse 21, And then the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of this law, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does it any grass grow there. They, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, those four cities are mentioned in, in Genesis as cities that the Lord overthrew in his wrath and anger because they followed after their own peace. They followed after their own way and they lived wicked, sinful lives um, and they were corrupt at any level. Um, the covenant breakers are going to be cursed it's amazing, like when you watch the movies, there's the party weekend with the big flashing lights. And then in other movies, you see the drunk guy sitting at the bar, depressed and, and, and living in his whiskey glass. They don't tend to show the halfway point between those because the one leads to the other. And they, they don't really ever show the connection between them in the movies. But God's saying there is a connection. That if you live that way, you will be cursed. That your life of living for yourself doesn't end up anywhere joyful. So it's reasonable then that he says uh, that, that people will see this and that people that rise up and come after you, verse 22, they're going to see this lifestyle and realize how sick it is. And that sickness is something they're just going to say, I pass. So that's wisdom. You can live in fear of the Lord's curses, or you can live in love with God's blessings, but there's no in between for believers. So some behaviors are going to have natural curses that affect people for the rest of their lives. And, and, and there are plenty of people I know that are saved in Christ, but some of the things they did before uh, they were saved have lasting effects on their life. And that idea of the, the whole land being burnt with salt uh, and brimstone and it just doesn't bear fruit, uh, only the grace of God can bring new life to a dead land. And God's going to do that physically with Israel after 1948. He's going to do it spiritually with believers that go from dead to alive because the firstborn of the dead has led the way. That's Jesus Christ. So for those coming into Israel, but also for the neighbors around them, God's saying the neighbors are going to watch what happens to you. Verse 24, all the nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then people would say, because they've forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he's made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against the land to bring on it every curse that's written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation, and he cast them into another land as it is this day. Israel's going to show the world what blessings and curses look like, and they still do. And they have throughout history for 3,500 years. They show us what it looks like. There are no, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, verse 29, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That includes today at Bible study on a Sunday night. We can read God's word and see that there are certain things God revealed that have come true. But the purpose of us seeing prophecy and seeing how well it's been met, verse 28 is a miracle. The purpose for us to read that, look at the end of verse 28, that we might do all the words of this law. The reason we can look at Israel is that it is a giant, epic, God-sized witness of what God does. Amen. 
Like we can look at that sort of thing and we can look at how their history has gone and we can say God is real and we can say we'll follow him. And the idea that there's secrets in prophecy, that God holds some things to himself is because God's ways are higher than our ways. He doesn't have to reveal to us everything. He didn't have to name the Roman generals. He can reveal to us that it's going to be a nation that doesn't speak your language, that's fierce, that has an eagle that flies swiftly like an eagle, and they're going to come in from the end of the earth and float in on boats. So he can give us those pieces that when they happen, they're revealed to us and to our children forever, we can teach them. So there's tons of principles here around how God speaks to us. And I I say speak specifically because I think Christians use the term God spoke to me really loosely. And I think carelessly, because if you say God speaks to you, that you don't want to use that name falsely. You don't want to misrepresent that. God has dominion and public visibility over Israel. And what he's revealed there is a way that he speaks to us. He speaks to us through history. It, it implies here when it says those things which are revealed belong to us, that God does reveal things to people. There are people that say God spoke to me, and I believe that's true because the Bible says so. Because God spoke directly to Paul. He spoke directly to Moses. He spoke directly to the prophets. They didn't hear some, they didn't imagine a voice in their head. They heard a voice. They saw a burning bush that was absolutely visceral and and the voice of the Lord was heard. The voice of the Lord is heard on the mountain by all of the Israelites hearing the law. So they actually heard the voice of the Lord, remember? And they said, Moses, you need to do it because we can't handle it anymore. So when, when, when people say, oh, God spoke to me yesterday and he told me I should buy a Coke instead of a Pepsi, I can guarantee you that the Lord God, the creator of the universe, did not speak to you with that revelation because it's not consistent with the word of God. When God speaks to you, you as a human being are barely able to handle it. In fact, most of the times when the Lord speaks, the human in front of them just falls to their face on the ground. So when the Lord spoke to you, did you fall on your face? Were you so overwhelmed with power that that happened? And I don't want to pick on people too much. And and again, I don't doubt that God speaks to us, but when we say God spoke to me, to say that we read the Word of God and we see history and we see it happening in today, that's consistent with what the Word of God says, and God speaks through the Word of God. We, we know from here that it belongs to us and our children forever. When God speaks to us, it's very personal. It's an intimate thing when God speaks to us, right? A fourth idea is that it's meant to be understood. Something that's revealed has been shown. So when God speaks to us, it's not in a mystery or in some mystery sentence that we need to go on a quest to find the three unlocking keys to understand what God said. That's a Gnostic heresy. When God speaks to us, we know exactly what he's talking about. And he usually speaks to us through the regular reading of the word God. You ever met people that like they just flip open the Bible and drop their finger and they read that verse? Oh, God's speaking to me. Uh, you know, the Bible never says to do that. That's kind of soothsaying in some way. But the God does say to read his word consistently, both day and night, we should meditate on his word. So in the regular course of our systematic Bible study, we start to see God speaking to us and he speaks through his word. It says to our children forever, that's another principle, God speaks through generations. So mothers and fathers actually do speak to their children and can share the law of God with their kids. And God tells those kids to obey and honor their parents and listen to their wisdom because parents can be the voice of God in their kids' lives, if they're godly parents, that is. 
And God communicates to inform actions. The point of all of this is that we might do all the words of the law. If when God speaks to us, we do something that's contrary to the word of God, then that's not God talking to us. The point of God talking to us is so that we can do what the law says we should do, as defined by the first five books of the Bible and defined by the teachings of Jesus, defined by the lessons we see in the prophets, right? So last but not least, um, the words of God are the speaking of God. And that connection, and, and you can't elevate the Bible too much because the Bible claims that God's word is speaking through us and that it is the revealed word of God that speaks to us. So anything that's contrary to the Bible is not God speaking. And there are, the Bible does say there are other spiritual forces out there. So that you might have heard something, I don't doubt that, but you likely haven't heard from God if it's contrary to the word of God. So we're supposed to test things, the Bible says. So when we hear a word, we're supposed to test it against the word of God. We're supposed to maybe go to our parents and ask what they think. We're supposed to be with our other believers. Um, it says us, it doesn't say you. We can, in the body of Christ, we can test that word that we heard with other believers. And that's exactly the instructions we see in the New Testament. So when God speaks, we know it, we can confirm it, and we can validate it in the word of God and we can move forward with confidence because God doesn't want people being lost and groping about like blind men as we saw earlier in chapter 28. That's not a blessing. When we do something and we feel that God's guiding us in that direction, we can confirm it in some really powerful ways. Um, anyways, uh, that thought, we're going to end on a lot more enjoyable note with the next chapter because as we go to verse 30 or chapter 30, God's going to, through Moses, give the entire history of Israel again through the blessings. And he's going to say, here's how I'm going to bless you. And when you put the two histories of 28 and 30 together, you just don't know where to fit them like a zipper. You don't know which notch goes in where. But ultimately, when you put them together, it gives you the entire history of Israel. So we'll pick up next week in chapter 30 with the history of Israel. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you. And this is a tough set of chapters to, to absorb because, Lord, the, the Hebrews have been oppressed nearly their whole history. Uh, but they're not broken. Uh, they've been wore down, but they are not worn out. Uh, they have been decimated and destroyed, but yet a remnant remains. Uh, Lord, we can be in the darkest places ever, yet there is light, and we can hold to that light and follow it. Lord, it doesn't matter how bad it gets. There's always hope. Even unto death, you can take dry bones and make them live. So Lord, let us see as a lesson that you can and you do do that to your people. That there can be trials, but the point of trials is that we turn back to you and that we love you. Um, Lord, we live in the hope that there can also be blessings. And we can't wait for next week to get into chapter 30 because we want to see those blessings too. Lord, we follow you because we love you. We follow you because we fear the curses. Lord, we follow you because you are righteous and good and your ways are higher than our ways. You have secrets that have not been revealed. And Lord, we can't wait to get to know you better. We can't wait to see you acting in our life and changing our life and renewing us and bringing rain back to our lives so that we can be watered by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I think of the woman that came to the well and Jesus asked her for water. And, and uh, Lord, and she was, uh, you know, you know, who are you to give me water? I'm a Samaritan woman. Why would you want to do that? And Jesus said, if you knew me, You'd know that I have water that you can drink that would you would never thirst again. Lord, help us to 
repent and run back to everyone we know like she did and claim that we just met the Messiah. Lord, help us to be renewed each day with the quiet blessing of our life, our clothes, our shelter, our food in our bellies, Lord, that we live a life of blessing and to give you credit and glory for those things that we may not have even thought of yesterday. May we look at our sandals and our clothes and our food and the victories we've had in the faith and the land we've conquered and the strongholds we've tore down. Lord, may we look at those things and just be reminded of how amazing you are and give you the glory because you are all powerful and all good. Lord, we don't need a cloud of fire in front of us because that won't change our heart. What we need, Lord, is you. We want you in our lives. We want you to speak to us. We want to be in your word so we can hear your voice and we have eyes to see what you're doing in our life. Help us to wake up. Help us to be your people called a holy people before God and help us to run from sin, Lord, and to get to deal with those battles in our life that we have to fight and we have to do battle with our own flesh. We have to get sin out of our life, Lord, because you can give us the power to do that, not on our strength, but on yours. So, Lord, I just pray for each person today. I pray that you bless them in that battle, bless them in that fight, help them to be holy, help them to share the good news, help us to be so busy doing your business that we forget about our business and it becomes empty. Uh, Lord, help us to be bold even in the face of the wormwood and the bitterness. Help us to be awake even in the face of the drunkard. Uh, Lord, that we can just share with a shining light that you have come that Messiah has come, that Messiah rose from the dead and goes before our Father in heaven to represent us, to atone for our sins. Lord, thank you for your gift on the cross. Thank you for all you've given us and thank you for the hope. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.